NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, remotely by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, 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 do we have a show for you today because, well, I was going to say we're heated. I know I'm heated, and I'm not even heated angry. I'm heated. I'm ready to, I'm ready to rant. Is that pun morning. intended because your beloved Miami Heat are absolutely shitting the bed right now, or they might are. I read something else into that? They're getting trucked, and uh, we can talk about that later. But you know where we have to start, Wolfwine. Listen, you know, with Ernie Grunfeld out of a job in Washington for a couple of years now, uh, and even James Dolan's Knicks surprising me this season. I've you need a new passion project. I've been searching for some clowns to clown this year. Just waiting, chomping at the bit for someone, something, or some team to give me a reason to pull out the oversized red shoes and the red nose. And you know what? The Los Angeles Clippers have stepped the hell up to take on the clown of the year, clown of the decade, clown of the whatever amount of time you want to put forward here. Look, even when I do the pound the rock hot takes or rants, I still try to remain like nuanced and base those opinionated ramblings on facts and observations and whatever. And, uh, you know, also never let it get personal. But with all that said, this Clippers team, these guys got to be the biggest bunch of fugazis I've seen in a long time. I sent you the message yesterday saying that they got to be the least trustworthy, legitimate contender I have ever seen in my life. Everything about this team and franchise is fraudulent, including the fact they're wearing playoffs our way shirts during their playoff run because the Clippers whole mantra is L.A. our way. Okay, so but play- sorry, counterpoint. So far this postseason, have they not been doing it the Clippers way? Like this is that, this exactly is the Clippers. So that, this is the playoffs was, their way. Yes, that's exactly what I was gonna say. Like really, your 2021 playoff run <laughs> slogan is playoffs our way when your way historically in the playoffs has been futility, buffoonery, choking, and failure. So you know what? You're, you're right. This is the playoffs your way. And look, I get. I really do get it. We will talk about it. The fact that this series and the talking points of this series should be more about the fact that Luka Doncic is basketball Jesus right now, okay? I get that his supporting cast is shooting better than 54% on three-pointers right now through two games, and Mm -hmm. that's clearly unsustainable. But we can acknowledge all that and still acknowledge and admit the fact that the Clippers are absolute frauds. They're uninspired. They didn't show up defensively despite being down two, uh, sorry, despite being down one nothing at home in the closest thing you can get to a must win game before a literal must win game. This team remains all talk and no action. Marcus Morris said in March that people can talk shit at the time, but we'll be ready for the playoffs. Yeah, you'll be ready to watch the playoffs pretty damn soon because your season's almost over. They wanted this matchup, man. And yes, they wanted to avoid the Lakers. I get it. It was more so about avoiding the Lakers than it was about wanting Dallas. But this is what avoiding the Lakers meant. They out-tanked the goddamn Thunder and Rockets on the final week of the season. You know how hard that is to do? They out the most impressive thing the Clippers have done all season. <laughs> yeah, maybe ever. They out-tanked the Thunder and Rockets just to get this matchup. Well, here you effing go. You got it. You know, Christian Winfield of the New York Daily News had a really good tweet last night where he tweeted out, you know, the famous stat about more than 94% of teams who win the first two games of a series on the road 
end up winning the series. And he had a very good point at the end of that tweet. And it was that these Clippers are not that 6%. And that's the thing. It's not even impossible. It's just that this specific Clippers team has given us no reason to believe that they will defy the odds, that they will show up, that they will play with heart. I mean, you listen, you've been waiting for playoff Rondo to cease being a thing for a long time now. Well, congratulations, because it turns out all you needed was him to go play with this bunch of heartless bums in L.A. I think and Rondo's you know been I, I think Rondo's been fine. He has. And I will say, Paul George, I'm sorry, he I mentioned that this this has become a, a band of heartless bums. Paul George is the captain of Team Heartless right now. This guy's the goddamn tin man when it counts. I mean, he played a really good game last he, night. Like listen, what, he was he was very good offensively in the first half and he defended throughout the game. I will give him that. He was as shook as he was so far out of his element in that second half and down the stretch. The, the play where he had Porzingis on a mismatch and could have beat him and looked like he was about to beat him and then pulled it back to brick a jumper. The contrast between that decision at that point of the game and his first half decision to drive and destroy Porzingis' ankles on a drive, the contrast there between what he does when the game's free and easy in the first half and what he reverts to when it's sphincter tightening time in the fourth quarter of a close playoff game, the man is a tin man. He's got no heart left. I don't know what happened to him sometime between that 2018-19 phenomenal season he had and even the, that playoff series that he was actually good in against the Blazers. I don't know what happened between then and now. I don't know if like some bad karmic energy was channeled when he said Dame took a bad shot there. Or Dame, like, I don't know what happened, but this guy, we're at a point where I'm more confident betting against Paul George when it counts than betting on him playing like a player he's capable of playing. He just doesn't show up when, when you need him to. I mean, goddamn, I thought the trade would hurt them years down the line. I didn't realize that I might take SGA over him right now. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm done. But Paul George in these two games averaging 25.5 points, 9 rebounds, 5.5 assists, shooting 68% from two-point range. He's shooting 20% from three. That's a problem for sure. But on the whole, we're talking about like close to 60% true shooting. And if you want to use that one play where he got a switch against Porzingis and decided to go to the step back rather than putting it on the floor and like comparing that to the play in the first half. Like that play in the first half, he caught the ball on the move. Porzingis was backpedaling. It's not really the same as initiating from a standstill. And how many times in these two games have we seen Luca get the switch on Avica Zubac and he goes to the step back? He's done it basically every single time. And all we hear is like the Clippers are imbeciles for switching Zubac onto Luca, and Luca is absolutely torching that switch. But what he's doing is going to the step back. He's just hitting the shots. And I like, okay, so this is a results oriented business. That's what we're going to focus on. But I think it's like a little overblown to me. And there, look, there's it, a process thing there too, man. Do you, do you think Paul George looked as aggressive, as assertive in the second half, and especially in that fourth quarter as he did early in that game, man? There is I some, mean, this guy's got the, like, there is something going on there between the ears when it comes down to it in, in, in this time of the season now. And I don't, that's what I'm saying. I'm not, he, this guy is not historically a playoff choker. He used to be like a big time, big game and playoff performer. And that's what I'm saying. I don't know what happened to him sometime between the end of that 2019 season when he got, what is it just like a Clippers thing? I don't know. Did he get too much in his own head last year as things started building? I don't know. Okay. But what, but what about him? Go, like he had 28, 12 and six last night on 12, 22 shooting. Like I, I the, the Clippers defense is a problem. And Paul George is a, 
part of that problem. He, to me, is like nowhere near the biggest issue, but like it, it's been a team-wide scheme-oriented issue and Paul George bears some blame as part of that. But on an individual level, I think like, I think Paul George has been good. I think he's had a good series. I think we're focusing on I think on the he hasn't been good here. enough. I think he hasn't been Well, he enough. clearly hasn't been good enough because they're in a 2-0 hole. But that, to me, has way more to do with what the Mavs are doing than what the Clippers are doing. And and this is the thing. Like, I look at this and I'm like, the Mavs have shot 50% from three as a team across two games. The Clippers have a 121 offensive rating in these two games, despite the fact that they haven't shot the three particularly well. And this was maybe the best three-point shooting team of all time during the regular season. We talked about their issues creating rim pressure during the regular season, being too jump shot reliant. They have a considerably higher at-rim frequency than the Mavs do in this series. They're averaging more drives per game. They're averaging more paint touches. So from a process perspective, I don't think it's as bad as the 2 nothing series deficit makes it look. And I think if we were to strip the sort of situation out of it the the residual trauma maybe from Clippers postseasons past the fact that they're now going to Dallas in a two nothing hole and we know what kind of psychological toll that can take obviously the Mavs are in the driver's seat right now but if you were to just look at those facts like I think this series is far from over and I think it could really turn in a hurry with some shooting regression so that's Look, the, the Clippers jokes are hilarious. Like, I, I have no issue with people getting their jokes off. And the Clippers are one of the easiest teams to clown, like, in history, just because they've sort of done it to themselves with the things that they've said and how yes. they've carried themselves. But at the same time, what are you supposed to do with Luka? Like, seriously, what are you supposed to do? Like, when he's shooting the ball like this, I honestly don't know how you guard him. And I'm not saying there aren't things that the Clippers can't do better. Like there is stuff they can execute better. There still a lot of soft switches they're conceding needlessly and they're giving him the Reggie Jackson matchup. They're giving him the Pat Beverly matchup and he's had no issue whatsoever destroying those guys one-on-one. But I'm genuinely curious. Like, do you, do you think the Clippers believe that getting the Pat Bev switch on him is like a good thing? Like, do they genuinely see it as, you know, Pat Bev's a good no, no. So th- this is good for like, there's no way that they can think that's good for them. I because think even if you watched last night, like there was a couple times, okay, Bev poked the ball away or he got a little under his skin. But for the most part, at Doncic's size, like he's treating Beverly like essentially just a mild inconvenience. So here's my thing. I think they thought coming into the series that they were going to be able to buy a few possessions with Beverly on Doncic because they started out game one essentially with Beverly as his primary. And I don't think they planned to finish the game that way, but I think they thought that that could be an okay look to start the game. And they were very quickly disabused of that notion because Luca took him straight into the post or bullied him on drives. Like, like Bev wasn't even there and he, he put him in foul trouble or he scored easily over him. And I think they realized that that wasn't the matchup they wanted. And in game two, like they were actually working a little bit harder to avoid that switch. Like Bev was hedging out on a couple of those screens and trying to stay out of the switch. But when the Clippers tried to hedge to avoid the switch, Luca was turning the corner and just scoring easily at the rim. And this is something we can get into when we talk about Zubac, which you know, we talked about Zubac coming into the series and how I thought he would be an important factor to stopping Luca. His inability to hedge effectively is an issue. 
He's been so disappointing, man. And that's been true with their guards too. Like they're not preventing Luca from turning the corner when they're doing that. And so I think in a lot of cases, they kind of have the right idea with what they're trying to do. It's just the execution that hasn't been good. And so when they've tried to hedge, he's turned the corner. When they've tried to drop and fight over the screen, he's just gotten into the middle of the floor and he's either either like hitting floaters or he's spraying it out to shooters. They tried to go under screens, which I don't think typically is the worst approach against Luca. Like if you can goad him into taking a bunch of step backs or pull up threes, like that's one of the aspects of his game in which he's weakest. He's still good at it because the guy's an absolutely ridiculous offensive talent. But like, I think that's the thing probably that you want him doing. But when they're going under, he's just drilling pull up threes. And when they're giving the switch, like, first of all, he scored one-on-one against PG. He scored one-on-one against Kawhi. He hit that insane rainbow yeah. turnaround fadeaway over Kawhi in the post. Like, even when you the know, Clippers are having, like, the matchups that they want on him, he's dude, cooking them anyway. A running, one-legged, falling-to-his-left <laughs> three-pointer that he absolutely did not need to take in a two-possession playoff game in the second half, and he found nothing but net. Like, yeah. And that was, I mean, that was just a flex, right? Like that was a, an yeah. insane heat check. And th- and that's why I'm, w- when I'm watching this and being like, okay, like what are the Clippers really supposed to do here? Because again, and we can come back to this about the, the things that they can actually execute better. But he's scoring on Kawhi 101. He's scoring on PG 101. He's scoring on Marcus Morris 101. He's scoring on Beverly 101. They're not having success when they're avoiding the switch with Zubach and coming in, I thought like the way that they ought to play it and the way that they played it in the past was like basically having Zubach in a shallow drop. And if Luca winds up driving the ball, you just turn it into a late switch and you trust Zubach's ability to kind of cut off the drive and force him into like contested runners basically. And honestly, people are going to think this is nuts. I think Zubach has done a really good job of that. Even when they've just gone with the outright switch He's moved his feet well. He's stayed in front. Look at the shots that Luka has made over Zubac in this series. Like, I think as far as the guys that they've switched onto Luka the most, like Zubac has done the best job of actually forcing him into tough shots. Way better than Beverly has done. Way better than Reggie Jackson has done. And sometimes it's just pure talent. Like, and there's not yeah. a whole lot that you can do. Luka taking a step back over Zubac's nine foot reach is probably what, you, like that's the best you can hope for. If you're the Clippers defense, and I know there's an element of like when he knows that switch is coming, he knows he can get to his spot. He knows that Zubac is going to play him with a cushion and then he's not going to block the shot. He can get super comfortable and just knock those down. But when the alternative is you have to like shade extra help his way and that's opening up his passing and that's putting the Clippers in rotation. And especially when like the Mavs are shooting the ball the way that they're shooting it. I mean, you mentioned how good their role players have been, but like Hardaway Jr., has been insane. Kleba has been insane. Like Finney Smith has knocked down his threes. Porzingis finally got going in game two. Well, what Porzingis got going because, so, I mean, you mentioned the issues, especially with Zubac, defending the pick and rolls at like the point of attack and, and them not being able to, he's turning the corner on them way too easily. So when they were big, Doncic was absolutely feasting on Zubac, who, you know, as I mentioned, has been disappointing in that uh, regard defensively. And also, when in the few minutes Serge Ibaka played, like Serge Ibaka is clearly not 100%. We both talked about how, you know, even at full strength, 
he's not what he once was defending in space, but he's a lot better than what he's showed so far in this series. He's clearly not 100% from, I think it was the, an ankle injury that he had or a calf. I can't remember now. So when they've been big, like Doncic is just absolutely picking them apart, whether it's Ibaka or Zubac, because they're getting caught in that no man's land where like they're not really doing enough to stop his drive at the top, but they're also not really attached enough to whoever it is that Luca's finding on the roll, if he is finding that guy. And the Mavs are just torching him like that. And then you mentioned Porzingis getting going. Like last night was a good example. Then when the Clippers did go small to try to maybe get a little bit more speed and just like natural agility out there defensively to kind of hang with what Luca was doing in the pick and roll, then the Mavericks were like just very simply executing getting Porzingis the ball in the middle of the floor. And he was just shooting over top of whoever was on him with ease. I mean, once in a while it was... Marcus Morris so it wasn't as much of a size still a size mismatch but not as bad but like there were times when the Clippers were going small and all the Mavs were doing were getting Porzingis the ball in the middle of the floor with like Terrence Mann on him and he was just elevating and shooting over him and Porzingis had 20 points I think on like 13 possessions it was like one of his most quietly efficient games he's had as a Maverick it's weird because the Clippers like should they're they're the better team on paper. We know this. Like they, you know, they seem to have certain advantages. We've talked ad nauseum about the fact the Mavs don't really have any defensive answers for Kawhi and PG. But now we're two games into this series, and it's quite obvious. It's actually right now the Clippers who just seem to not really have any answers for the Mavs. Which again, yes, a lot of that is just because like at some point, what the hell do you do? when Luke is playing like this and his supporting cast is shooting like this. But as you mentioned, it is a results driven business. A playoff series, it's a small sample size. Shit can happen. And right now, shit's happening. And it just really feels like the Clippers, it's a combination to me of the Clippers like not really having any answers for what's happening with Dallas right now. And the fact that the execution is just not as crisp and as perfect as it needs to be. And yeah, maybe it's unfair to expect perfection, but you're a championship contender. The margin for error is very, very razor thin especially in the Western Conference when there's no such thing as a pushover matchup. Maybe it's 5% more focus. I don't know. Maybe it's 5% more attention to detail in the film. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know what it is, but that's what I was going at with PG. It's not that he's overall playing bad basketball, but there is like something where even if it is just that one play you can pick at in the fourth quarter, it's like, man, the position you guys are in right now, you cannot afford to have the, okay, we were good except for this, or we... You know, we did everything right except for this sort of thing. Like, your backs are against the wall. You're now in a situation where, until proven otherwise, Luka Doncic looks like the best player in this series, and you now got to beat him four out of five. Like, there is no more room for good but not good enough. But so what do you do? I'm legitimately at like asking because I have no idea. There may be nothing. There may be nothing. They might just be toast now. Well, I don't think they are because I just don't think the Mavs are going to keep shooting this way, and I think... Honestly, like the Clippers offensive process has been every bit as good as Dallas's has. They just haven't had the same level of shot making and they all like they also don't have the same level of playmaking. And that is an important distinction, right? Kawhi was absolutely insane in last night's game and the Mavs don't have a good defensive answer for him, but he can't use his teammates the way that Luca can. And I, I do think that is a, a big distinction. So one thing I would say is I don't think it's the kind of thing that the Clippers can just do over and over again because Luca will just sort of figure it out, diagnose the coverage, and pick it apart. Mixing in more blitzes to get the ball out of Luca's hands 
trusting themselves to rotate on the back end because there have been possessions in his first couple of games where they've done a really good job of that. I think it's just a little bit too exhausting for them to do all game. And again, like it's going to be too easy for Luca to figure it out. But like one thing I've noticed is so many of the double teams that they're bringing, they're not like outright aggressive blitzes that are catching Luca unawares. You know, a lot of the time what's happening is they're giving up the switch and then they're bringing the second defender because they're like, oh no, this is not the matchup we want. And Luca's seeing that second defender coming a mile away and the ball's out of his hands, like before that guy can even apply an iota of pressure. I think if they want to blitz him, like it's got to be a little bit more aggressive like they got to bring a little bit more pressure and actually like like throw him off a bit like send them from different directions try and blindside him a bit rather than like bring the double team that he can see coming that option isn't always going to be available to them like they're not always going to have a chance to bring it from the blind side but I think there just has to be a little bit more variation in how they're doing it and that if if it's coming about because they're just giving up the bad switch and then they're forced to double like that's bad process Try to avoid giving up that switch in the first place. Like bring the blitz at the point of the screen so that you don't have to switch it. And I'm not saying that's not still going to burn them sometimes. Like Luca's still going to see it coming sometimes and get the ball out and put the Clippers in rotation, but at least you're making him feel pressure. And I do think there's an added benefit to that where like there's a lot of times where Luca doesn't really move a ton off the ball. And if you can get him to give it up, I think there's a decent chance that he might not get it back for the rest of the possession. So I think that's something that they can do a little bit better job of. But, you know, to me, I, I think my big takeaway, this this is just the case of a generational talent taking his game up a level, putting forth a transcendent individual performance while the role players around him all do their jobs to a T. And, you know, there's only so much that the Clippers could have done to avoid being in this situation right now. That's not to say they couldn't have done some things differently and been better. But I think this is way more about what the Mavs have done than it is about what the Clippers have done. And I don't think this series is over. Like, I think there's a there's a chance that the Clippers can come back and win it. But as you said, their margin for error is incredibly thin. And I think a, a lot of it is going to come down to where they're at mentally. And do they actually believe that they can turn the series around? And what's the effort going to look like in games three and four? And game three, especially, because if they go down 3-0, then it really is over. But if they come out, you know, with the requisite effort and focus to win game three... I think they're wholly capable of then it's an entirely new series and I I still think that they are the better team but right now Luca is you know far and away the best player in the series and that is proving to be a huge huge issue yeah from a basketball standpoint the Clippers absolutely are still in this series at some point it's also like do you believe in this team's resilience down to nothing going on the road It's as much about, like, do you believe this team will summon whatever is necessary to get out of this hole? And if you're asking me from just, like, a talent and basketball perspective, are the Clippers capable of it? Absolutely. But from that, like, do I believe in that resilience? Not at all. Because, again, they've given us no reason to believe in them from that perspective over the last two years. Okay, but the reason to believe in them is the talent and and looking at it from a basketball perspective. Because... Yeah, I'm not like completely dismissing intangibles like that. And I'm not saying things like leadership and belief and toughness and resilience are complete non-factors. Like I'm sure those things matter to a certain degree. But to me, the far more important thing is like, do these guys have the actual basketball wherewithal to turn this series around? And I think that everything else sort of flows from that. 
like if they get off to a good start because they're shooting the ball well and the Mavs are maybe regressing to the mean from three-point range early in game three, then yeah, I think maybe the Clippers will be sort of like swarming around on defense and they'll be playing with some belief or it'll just look like they are because shots are going down and it seems like they're playing way better. But I think, again, I'm not totally dismissing that. I I just think that it's overplayed sometimes. And what this comes down to for me is like the Clippers are good enough to go into Dallas and like win both games. I'm Mm -hmm. not saying they're going to do that, but they have the capability of doing that. And if they do, I think it will be more about like how good they are at basketball than it is about like how mentally tough they are. No, that's fair. What I'd say the difference is, is that I agree with you. If they go into Dallas in game three, they start shooting the lights out and the Mavs are regressing and they get a big lead. The Clippers have a very front running mentality and they'll look like God's gift to basketball. But the, the difference to me is that in that situation, the Mavs will keep playing. And if the roles were reversed, even in a tie series, and it was the Mavs who got out to that unsustainable shooting start while maybe the Clippers dug a hole, the Clippers would absolutely fold like a tent and implode because of that's their DNA and the type of mentalities they've got on that team led by Paul George, the Tin Man himself. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I thought Paul George was really good last night, so we'll see how he comes out in game three, obviously a really important game for him and for the Clippers, but I, I'm curious. So what would you do? Cause I've seen some people suggesting that the Clippers should have shelved their bigs and play small the whole game, which I think is a terrible idea. Yeah, man. I, I was just talking about the fact that Porzingis, like, what do you do with Porzingis? Like who? Well, okay. So, so what they did in game, in- yeah, what they did in game one was they put Kawhi on, on KP to basically be like, if you want to use KP as a screener, Kawhi's just going to switch onto Luka. And what the Mavs did was like, all right, KP, like you go hang out in the corner and you're just going to draw Kawhi away from the central action. And we're going to find a different screener to get whatever matchup we want, whether that's Luka going at a smaller guy like Reggie Jackson or Patrick Beverly, or whether it's him going against Zubach. Like they tried to put Zubach on Dorian Finney-Smith. They just used Finney-Smith as a screener. Yeah. They got the switch they wanted anyway. It, that totally you know, froze Porzingis out of the game in game one, but it didn't ultimately matter. So then they put Kawhi on Luka in game two and it's like, okay, well, like the Mavs are now just able to screen Kawhi off. And I, and I think Kawhi has to wear some of that. Like we talk about what a great defender he is. He's not the same defender he was at his peak. And the biggest thing to me, we don't know, I guess, whether it's schematic, like how much of it is by choice, how much of this is actually within Kawhi's hands, or is this just what the scheme is calling for? But to me, it looks like one of the biggest reasons the Clippers keep giving up these soft switches is Kawhi doesn't want to fight through those screens. And, and whether that's, you know, just like a, a sense of self-preservation where like he knows that he can't deal with that kind of physical attrition, given the load he's carrying at the offensive end, or if you want to just call it laziness, which I mean, you and I, like having watched Kawhi for his whole career and knowing what he's capable of, I don't think that's what we would chalk it up to. But he's got to own some of that. Like that is partly on him. So I don't know. But but I think my biggest thing is I would stick with the bigs. And, and if Ibaka isn't healthy, like that's scary because they don't really have any other options once you get past Zubac. And if Zubac can't hang, then I don't know. Like what what other options do you have other than to go small? But like, Going small hasn't worked for them in the series. And specifically, going small and blitzing Luka has been a real disaster because then they just don't have the rim protection on the back end to navigate those rotations. And the Mavs are just getting whatever they want at the rim. And specifically, KP. 
is getting whatever he wants at the rim. I think you kind of just have to hope that you can get better production out of those big guys. I'm not saying you need to have a big on the floor for 48 minutes, but I don't think you can shelve them entirely and hope to have any kind of success. I guess like when you have those small lineups out there, maybe just like don't have Reggie Jackson out there with those units because that's, that's what's forcing the Clippers to trap when they're small is like, you want to be small so that you can switch everything, keep the ball in front, like prevent Luca from dragging a big man into the action and collapsing your defense that way. But if Reggie Jackson's on the floor, he's just going to hunt out that matchup anyway. And if you're willfully conceding the switch, then you're forced to bring the double team anyway, or Luca's just going and scoring one-on-one. Like it totally defeats the purpose to me. As I wrote in the quick takeaway thing I did from last night's game, it seems like the Clippers are out of answers before they've even found one. Okay, so we both picked the Clippers to win this series. I had it going six. I think you had it going five. Yeah, you I'm not not holding out hope for, for I was going to say, like, you, you don't believe the series is over. I, I think from a basketball perspective, yes, the Clippers are capable of coming back. But it, it, it just a straight-up yes or no, do you think the Clippers are going to win four out of five right now and win this series? Because really, it's just asking them to do what you originally like thought they could do, which was just end this series in five, right? Like, I'm just going to beat this team four out of five. Yeah, but I mean, it's different because, you know, three of those five games are going to be in Dallas. Yeah. If it even which goes that I, far. I believe if I was reading correctly, game three in Dallas is going to be the first full capacity NBA game since last March. Yeah. So that place is going to be rocking. So I would have to say no, like that's not what I think is going to happen. I do think the Clippers are capable of it, but man, being down 2-0 and going on the road, like that's just a really, really tough situation to overcome. And, you know, to, to be perfectly honest, like despite all that I've said, I'm trying to contextualize all this and say like the Mavs are going to cool off, like the Clippers offensive process has been fine. It's obviously changed my opinion of the matchup like the fact that the Mavs have been able to dice them up to the extent that they have the fact that Zubac has looked suboptimal defending in space in a lot of situations even though I think on the switches again Luka has actually been more than fine um and the fact that Ibaka seems to be hurt is also again just like a, a really big concern and a possible pressure point for LA so yeah obviously like I give a significant edge to Dallas if I'm saying who do I think is going to win the series? I think it's going to be Dallas, but it's it's nowhere near like a 100% proposition for me. I think there is a decent chance that LA can turn it around, but but yeah, tough, <laughs> tough way to start the series yeah. after, uh, after the way that last year ended for them <laughs> and spending all regular season just thinking about the playoffs this year and how that was going to be their proving ground. This is rough. Yeah, and again, like even the, trying to duck the Lakers in the first round, you'd rather play Dallas in the first round than the Lakers. Like that made it's just that when you just package everything together, it's just so Clippers. You know, it's not even that like they were wrong to want to avoid the Lakers. It's just so Clippers and so this team that they would go so far out of their way to avoid the Lakers to get this matchup and then be down two nothing in this matchup. You know, like everything's coming up Clippers and not in the good way. But if Dallas completes the upset. I think we can agree that we will have plenty of time and plenty of topics to discuss when it comes to the Clippers in the coming weeks and months. So I think for now, we can leave this there. We'll take the break. We'll come back. We'll talk Lakers-Suns. 
What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, a much more evenly played series, I guess, from a wins and losses perspective, because it's 1 1, it's the only other option, is Lakers Suns. And it has been an absolute barn burner. I mean, we had the emotional downer of Chris Paul seemingly being lost, and then he comes back, but he's clearly not himself. I don't know exactly how many minutes he played in game two, but clearly can't do what Chris Paul does, which is an absolute shame when you just consider everything about this guy's career and just bad luck in the playoffs and stuff. Nevertheless, this is still a fascinating series we've got, and it's now a best of five going to LA. We split up the games last night. You probably paid a little more attention to this game than I did. So you tell me what what have you seen? What did you see in game two? Where do you think the series is going? If Chris Paul can't get right, if he's just the guy that he was in game two, then to me, it's going in the Lakers direction. I think it's really encouraging that the Suns were able to hang tough for basically the entire game, despite Chris Paul being in that clearly diminished state. I think campaign deserves a massive shout out for that. Like he stepped up and filled in extremely admirably. And I mean, just like his ability to get into the teeth of the Lakers defense time after time, like he was a problem at the point of attack. I also thought, I mean, he was making like really good reads. He knows where that sort of rotation is coming from, from the low man. And he's ready to make that, that kick out to the corner. There was like, he had a really nice drive where he had Aiton on the roll and Gasol was dropping back. He leaves his feet and gets Gasol to do the same and makes a really nice midair adjustment with a wraparound pass to hit Aiton for a dunk. He hit a massive, like pretty deep jab step three to tie the game in the fourth quarter. I mean, that was, I remember saying even like before the season started that like the thing I was most concerned about was if Chris Paul wasn't going to be healthy for an extended stretch for Phoenix, their backcourt depth really worried me. And all season long, campaign has answered the bell and that hasn't been an issue at all so kudos to him and also like Chris Paul literally was healthy the entire season I think did he miss a single game he might he might have missed one game man his last two years you know I don't know whether it's just a complete coincidence or it's him you know there's the whole thing about him going vegan and really changing his diet Mm -hmm. to adapt to the later stages of his career but he's been insanely durable the last two seasons which only makes what happened in game one even more annoying and frustrating because it was like you know people will maybe talk about him being injury prone it's like if you look at his career and his playoff injuries especially okay maybe like the hamstring one you could say it's like a soft tissue issue there you know i don't know fitness level I don't, but like for the most part his playoff injuries have just been dumb luck and this was a perfect example like his own teammates elbow catches him right in the corner of where your shoulder meets your chest just unbelievably bad luck for a guy who's turned himself actually into a durable veteran that does just make it so much more frustrating the fact that he has had such pristine health and and that the suns really looked like they had a great chance of taking hold of this series and you know he still managed to be effective in spots And I give him a lot of credit for that, you know, despite barely being able to dribble with his right hand and obviously 
being either reluctant or unable to shoot the ball. He still made some really productive plays. He hit, uh, I think it was Schroeder he hit with the Smitty, like the kind of fake spin where he spun back and just totally shook him and then hit Torrey Craig for a cutting dunk. And it was still kind of like manipulating the Lakers and pick and roll, even though like they had to know that he wasn't a threat to score at all. There was one possession, I think, in the fourth quarter, the one where he where he found Crowder in the corner and it turned into a four point play because AD had to sort of close out wild on him. And Paul just sort of by snaking the pick and roll and stringing it out, managed to draw two to the ball, even though it's like it's the fourth quarter and you've watched Chris Paul play this entire game and you know that he doesn't want to shoot the ball and is not a threat to score, still drew two to the ball. So if he can just kind of like get a little bit more comfortable handling and shooting, then I still think he can be a, a super productive player in this series. But that's a huge downer. Obviously, I think the biggest story probably in this game was the big bounce back for Anthony Davis. I don't know how many points. I think he finished with, what, 34 points? But yeah. 21 free throw attempts. And did he get a favorable whistle in this game? I would say yes, he did. But I think the the bigger story was his aggressiveness. Because like the fact is that AD still can't really hit a jump shot to stay, to save his life right now. He hit that huge three to kind of put the game away in the fourth quarter. But his jumper is not a reliable weapon right now at all. So to see him kind of attacking the rim, getting the ball on the move a little bit more, we saw a lot of LeBron AD pick and roll and and even like a nice dribble handoff between them that led to an insane like LeBron fading three yeah. in the corner. But the two-man action between those two guys was working quite well. And then they close with AD at the five for like three and a half minutes. And it's just a wrap. I, I want to say like, I, you know, I was kind of advocating for them to start the series this way. I also understand why they wouldn't want to and why they feel like they need to save those AD at the five minutes for crunch time for when they just really need it. And they want to make sure that AD is in kind of like peak physical readiness to just sort of dominate in those minutes. And I will also say that Andre Drummond has been good in this series and was really good in game two, um, especially defensively. I still think like where he hampers them the most is at the offensive end. Yes. But defensively, I thought he was really good protecting the rim, getting out on the perimeter. And like I've said this before, I think when he, when he gets out there and pick and roll, like he, he can hedge, he can switch, he moves his feet well, he uses his hands well. He got a couple of steals, he got a block, and he was dominant on the glass. Like we've talked before about how his rebounding numbers don't always reflect the actual impact he's making on his team's rebounding. That wasn't at all the case in this game. And after they got shredded on their own glass in game one, they, I don't know how many offensive boards they ultimately gave up, but it was very few. Like they did a really good job cleaning the glass and they got a bunch of O boards themselves. So kudos to Drummond for a great game. The fact that his presence on the floor makes Anthony Davis less effective is not his fault, but his presence on the floor makes Anthony Davis less effective. <laughs> when they went to Anthony Davis at the five, it was just, you know, for one thing, obviously that means there's just like a little bit more space. And by the way, like a lot of the times that they were running the LeBron AD pick and roll was with Drummond out there on the floor. And what was happening was like the Suns were switching it and then AD is just getting a post up against Mikhail Bridges and the Suns are doubling. Or one time they didn't double and AD just went straight to the basket for an and one layup. One time they doubled, LeBron moved over from the top to the wing. So he gave AD the easy kick out and wound up hitting a three out of the double. Simple stuff. Defensively, down the stretch, with AD at the five, I felt like Phoenix couldn't do anything because they'd really been 
putting a hurting, I think, on LA's defense with the Spain pick and roll. And with AD at the five, it's like the Lakers can just switch everything. Like they they switch both screens and there's no advantage created. And it's like either Booker driving towards AD on the back end of that, or it's him trying to go one-on-one against LeBron. And that basically resulted in a miss and a turnover. AD had, in that stretch where he was playing the five, he had a help side block on Aiton, a help side steal, force a turnover on Booker on the drive. And maybe there was one other play that I'm missing, but basically made it impossible for the Suns to score. So just like an incredible finishing kick from the Lakers. And also just like a great shot making game for LeBron. Like I mentioned that fading three in the corner. He also hit a wicked turnaround fadeaway over Cam Johnson. Now it's, you know, the Lakers kind of have home court advantage back. I think the Suns are still very much in this series. Booker still managed to have a good game, despite the fact that the Lakers were kind of messing with his rhythm and throwing a lot of different looks at him. And, you know, another guy that I was sort of wrong about, playoff DeAndre Ayton, man. That dude's been a monster. A monster. I was going to say, like, Booker's gotten plenty of love because, you know, just in general, the way he's handled the Lakers defense, especially with Paul out and the extra attention on him, has been pretty masterful. Like, you can't really ask for much more from the guy. But, man, give DeAndre Ayton some love and his flowers, too, because, my God, could you not have asked for anything more from DeAndre Ayton in the first two playoff games? And, like, just even the things we thought he might struggle with or maybe they could expose a little, the Lakers could expose a little bit, like just has not been the case. The guy has showed up and has done his job and then some, and is a big reason the series has been as competitive as it has been despite the fact Chris Paul has been out. He's done a really good job defending AD. Like even with the 34 points that AD scored in game two, like he was not making it easy by any means. And and apart from like the fouls that sent Davis to the line, some of which I thought were a little ticky tack, AD's not having an easy time scoring on him one-on-one. Uh, and I think his pick-and-roll defense has been quite good. Like, there was one kind of screw-up, and I-, I honestly don't know if it was his screw-up or if it was Crowder's, but basically LeBron hit that game-sealing three when, again, they go to the LeBron-AD pick-and-roll. Crowder treated it as a switch, but Aiton was dropping back, and LeBron just, like, walked into a three. But that goes back to, like, how much easier it is, I think, for the Lakers to do that when AD's at the five, because... I think if Drummond was also out there, if Aiton's guarding that action, I feel like he knows automatically that he can be up or that it's a switch. And there's going to be somebody in the paint, like ready to help if he gets blown by on that switch or on the hedge, you know? But all told, like Phoenix has played incredibly well. And I think this has been just like a really high level series. Another guy, like very under the radar that I want to shout out is Kyle Kuzma. Would you have guessed even last year when I thought he was a much improved defender? The Lakers find themselves in a series where like an opposing star guard is kind of giving them the business and their answer is, is to throw Kyle Kuzma on him. Like that's incredible. I gonna, no, I was going to say like, yeah, he was a much improved defender last year and I don't think enough people gave him credit for that, but he's now an impact defender. I, yeah. He's so, become a defensive problem solver. It's wild. And, and if you, if you tell me you thought like anyone tells me that they saw that coming <laughs> I'll point out a liar because there's no way anyone saw, even if they thought, oh, he could hold his own defensively when he figures it out. No one could have seen him being an actual impact defender. And that's what he's become. So I I thought he did a a really good job on Booker. I think he, for one thing, is like good at just like not getting pumped off his feet. Like his footwork has gotten so good. But then 
it's also like when the Lakers are in rotation, he doesn't make mistakes. Like wh- whether it's um, like Xing out, I think is something that the Lakers do as well as basically any team Xing out or late switching, like all that stuff where it's like, you have to make on the fly reads about where your help needs to be. He's just on point. Um, his closeouts are great. Like his individual defense is very solid. Big shout outs to Kyle Kuzma, who I think maybe only scored like four points in that game, but I thought made a big impact on it nonetheless. Yeah, I, I guess I'm interested to see what the what the tweaks are for Phoenix, how the Lakers approach guarding Booker in game three, because it was much different in game two than it was in game one. Like in game one, they trapped him way, way more. You know, it's it's kind of interesting to me that like with Chris Paul hobbled, the answer was to trap him less in game two. But I almost think it was more just about sort of showing him different looks and him not knowing what to expect than it was about forcing him to do a specific thing, like forcing him to give the ball up and trusting that without Chris Paul, the Suns didn't have enough, you know, shooting or playmaking to beat them. It was more just like they didn't want Booker to know what to expect. And I think that was well executed. I do wonder, you know, if if CP can't find some health here, and the thing is too, just the way things worked out, like Lakers Suns, I think they're the only series that doesn't have an extra day off between any of the first three games. So they're they're playing every other day until game four. Like they get an extra day off between games three and four. The way game two ended with the Lakers just going complete world destroyers with AD at the five and LeBron and AD kind of taking over those those final few minutes and now going back to LA with CP still hobbled. I do wonder if, unfortunately, this is now going to be just a shorter series than we originally anticipated, or even that we anticipated after Phoenix won game one, you know, with with a hobbled CP. And so I hope the Suns can take one in LA, you know, and turn it into a best of three with home court advantage just for the sake of, you know, entertainment value and competitiveness. But I, I do now worry that it might be all she wrote for them. Yeah, it's possible. I think, you know, if you're looking at it, the, the most likely outcome is the Lakers take both at home, the Suns stave off elimination in right. game five, and the Lakers win game six at home, which is like, yeah. I picked Lakers in six. I think you also picked Lakers in six, yeah. so I could definitely see it playing out that way. But but I, I definitely don't think the Suns are out of it. I kind of think LeBron, for as good as he was in spurts in game two, doesn't look fully like LeBron to me. He's still not really getting to the rim the way that he usually does. And again, AD the jump shot is still looking very shaky. So, uh, man, like the, the, the Suns have a chance. Um, but I do think that they need Chris Paul to be a little bit more healthy than he's been to this point uh, in order to really capitalize on that chance. All right, let's talk Bucks heat, which I know you want to do. I thought, I, I just was, I thought the game one win for Milwaukee was seismic because that game in terms of like, Giannis is playoff demons and free throw demons offensively. Like that game could not have gone any worse for Milwaukee. <laughs> no, no, really. Like, no, no, I know. I know. That's why it was Bam, such an encouraging win. Right. Bam had him in hell individually. And then at the free throw line, he struggled. He gets called for a freaking 10 second violation at the free. Like from a postseason and free throw demons perspective, that was as bad as you can expect from Giannis. And they won that game. You know, we've already had the whole like intangibles and, and mental um, conversation here in this episode, but like I do think that was a very, very important win for Milwaukee's state of mind as like a postseason contender. Milwaukee winning that game, which I don't think they win the last two years, you know, with that same kind of 
scenario plays out with Giannis, I really do think that was really big for them. It was huge. And Middleton and Drew Holiday were a big reason for that. And then, yeah, game two, they just kind of came out and did what they do and executed the way the Bucks do at their best. And Miami got run out of the gym. Here's what I want to give them huge credit for in game one. And then I'll move on to game two. Game one, Duncan Robinson comes out and is an absolute flamethrower. Immediately hits like three threes out of, two of them were out of dribble handoff. One of them was out of pick and roll where he actually rejected the screen. All three times, Bam was a screener. All three times, Brooke Lopez is parked in the paint. The Bucks could have overreacted to that. They've been sort of tweaking their scheme all year, or at least experimenting with different looks. You know, there have been calls for them to play Brooke Lopez less, to go smaller with, you know, Giannis or PJ at the five, switch everything. And the Bucks kind of stuck with it. And I really respected their plan, which was, if Duncan Robinson is going to shake loose and hit a bunch of threes, we're going to live with that if it means that we completely take Bam out of the game at the offensive end. And that is exactly what they did. And part of that falls on Bam because, look, during the regular season, like he was hitting mid-range jumpers regularly. That was a big part of his offensive growth. For whatever reason, he wanted no part of that in game one. And not really in game two either, but in game one, it was particularly glaring where... If the Bucks are able to snuff out that handoff action, which after the first few minutes, I thought they did a really good job of just basically, you know, by fighting through screens uh, when it was off ball action, like they're mostly doing lock and trail, but like a couple of times Middleton was able to shoot the gap and take that away. And Bam is there and he's getting the ball kind of around the elbow and he's looking for any handoff option that he can find. He's barely looking at the rim and there are like four or five possessions where one of them, Jimmy Butler, is like literally yelling at him just to like shoot the ball. And finally he does, and it's a miss. A bunch of other times he decides to try and drive the space that Lopez is giving him. Can't score over Lopez at the rim. If they had decided to like either bring Brooke higher up in the pick and roll or just start switching that action, it's like either what's going to happen is Bam's going to catch the ball on the roll with the four on three. Or he's going to have a much smaller defender on him that he can kind of take into the post and maybe force a double team. And you're just unlocking him as a scorer and a passer that way. And with Brooke just dropping back and sort of trusting their guards to fight over, Bam's not getting those opportunities. And I think that's a smart bet to sort of say, okay, like if you want Duncan Robinson to beat us, that's fine. But we're not going to give you what you want with Bam as the sort of handoff hub who can also be a scoring threat or a playmaking threat in the four on three. They allowed the heat to score six baskets in the restricted area in game one six uh and that both both butler and bam neither of those guys could get anything going inside the arc i thought brooke was fantastic and because i feel like i've said all along like i think that the the bucks biggest issues the thing the thing that's undone them in the playoffs the last two years has been their offense not their defense and I'm still seeing people saying that like Brooke should be on the bench in crunch time and they should be going to PJ Tucker at the five. I'm like, are we watching the same game? Brooke is out here absolutely dominating. And they I, won that I game would, with defense. If you look at the first four nights of the playoffs, I realize the statement in general is absurd because we're talking about a four-day sample size. But if you were to look at the first four nights of the playoffs, I would say Brooke Lopez has been the defensive player of the playoffs as far. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. Like that that's how much he's had the paint on lock through two games. And, you know, we were talking before the series and I was like, 
okay, like the, the, it's great that the Bucks have the option if they need to, to downsize and start to switch more. And that they've been practicing it and feel comfortable hopefully doing it in a playoff setting. But I'm not sure if this Heat team has the shot-making ability to actually pull the Bucks out of their base scheme. And that has 100% been the case so far. The Bucks are just like sticking with their principles, sticking with their base, and basically dominating doing it. And then they come out in game two, and after a horrific offensive performance in game one, it's like a completely different story where every three ball is falling and they're regressing well past the mean after shooting five for 31 from deep in game one. And some of that is, look, there's an element of luck in three-point shooting just in general. They're not going to sustain that level of shooting. But so many of those threes were coming as a result of like good offensive process. The stuff that we've been wanting to see them do, like we wanted to see them do in this series last year, where you're kind of headhunting a bit and you're going after Miami's weaker defenders and not letting them off the hook. And whether that was like Holiday just going one-on-one against Dragic, Middleton cooking Duncan Robinson one-on-one or Giannis actually looking for small screeners and going after, you know, whether it was Nunn, Dragic, Robinson, getting those guys switched onto him and forcing the double teams, triggering rotations, finding open threes. Um, I thought the Heat, their kind of over-aggressive defense really burned them in that game because they gave up a ton of open threes. And obviously Bryn, Bryn Forbes was just like completely molten in that game and and really got the Bucks out to that big lead. But I just think like all the stuff that made me feel more confident in this Bucks team in this postseason was on display, uh, especially in that game too. Um, because, you know, not just the shot making, but like th- they're running a lot more pick and roll and using Giannis yeah. as a screener. Like they were running a ton of double drag in that game too, which is not something you usually see from them. Like I would possibly even bet that that's the most they've used double drag in like any game in the last three years and they're mixing up how they used it like they'd use it as with Giannis as the first screener with Giannis as the second screener sometimes they're hitting him on the roll sometimes they're hitting the skip to the corner um their offensive process to me looks a hundred times better than it did in this series last year and I think they're they're in really good shape moving forward but I don't know I mean you you thought the Heat were going to make this a seven-game series. Um, it's going back to Miami now. Could completely change the tenor of the series. Like, do you, do you think they have some counters here? Like, do you see them turning it around? Where are you at with the Heat? I think they win a game in Miami, but I no, I, I don't. I don't think the series is going the distance anymore. I think the things that the Bucks seem to have figured out, or at least had been willing to figure out in the regular season have carried over to the playoffs. And I think the biggest thing for me is the way they've punished that over-aggressive Miami defense. And it's something like I wrote about it when we did our series preview for them, where it was like that heat over-aggressive defense, um, Milwaukee can exploit it if they operate the way they did in the regular season, if Giannis makes quick decisions, if their supporting cast is you know, ready and willing to fire away. And I said as well that like Drew Holiday should help on both fronts in that regard because, you know, he's going to have the ball in his hands some of those times against that aggressive Miami defense. And he is capable of making quick decisions with the ball in his hands there as, you know, traditionally a lead guard. And if the ball finds him with someone else in the distributing component of that exchange and Holiday's the one shooting it, you have full confidence in doing that. So I think 
just his presence has helped them a lot in specifically being able to exploit this Miami defense. But the way they've been able to do it, and as you mentioned, the fact that they are actively seeking advantages now and just milking them for all they're worth, which is what you need to do in the playoffs, I think has been encouraging. Look, I, like I've clowned this team as much as anyone over the last couple of years, but it is genuinely cool to see a team figuring it out. You know, to see a team learning from their mistakes. And yeah, maybe it happened two years instead of one and you don't like that. But I don't think you can watch them this season and especially watch them these two games and say they haven't learned from the past couple postseason heartbreaks. They have. And the presence of Drew Holiday is obviously huge. I think Chris Middleton has been awesome these couple games. I think Giannis bounced back from game one in a big way. And now we're just at a point where like, look, we both acknowledge the Bucs are the better team. Miami hasn't been able to provide the resistance. I imagine they would. I mean, they did in game one. But again, I think Milwaukee, Miami wins game one, even if Milwaukee blows the doors off in, in game two. Going back to Miami 1-1, I still have faith this thing's going the distance. But Milwaukee pulling that game one win out really did feel like some sort of like shedding of playoff demons, you know, being able to pull that one out despite the way Bam and the free throw line um, impeded Giannis in that game. And then, yeah, and then they blow the doors off in game two. So now I'm, again, I'm giving Miami one game in Miami, but I think this could be a five-gamer now. I will say as well, you mentioned the Heat not really looking like they have the shooters or maybe the the shot creation to punish Milwaukee's defensive schemes. Look, there's a, there'll be a team waiting in round two that – can absolutely do that, and Brooklyn can do that better than anyone. But until then, I don't think the Heat have the personnel to do it. And to your point about Bam, you know, I've said this before, but like, especially when it comes to jump shooting, you know, there are other skills that guys develop that, yeah, you want to see tested in the playoffs. But jump shooting is like the one thing where when a guy all of a sudden comes back and is an insanely improved three-point shooter or is traditionally a non-shooter in general who all of a sudden has like this confidence in his jumper and is taking shots he didn't take before. My one thing is like jump shooting more than anything is the one thing where I'm like, I'll believe it when this guy proves he actually believes it in the playoffs. I don't even mean till he hits a couple shots in the playoffs. I mean when he's willing to actually go to it in the playoffs. When he proves to me he believes this is now a dependable part of his game, then I'll believe it. Because what often happens, and you're seeing it with Bam, is it's like, oh, look, I have a jumper now. I'm very confident in this mid-range shot that teams are giving me. But then the playoffs roll around, and as you even pointed out, it's like he wants nothing to do with that shot that he seemed to have in the regular season. For whatever reason, you know, I made the sphincter tightening joke earlier in this episode. It's like something, whether it's the the way every single possession is valued in the playoffs, like whatever it is, guys get in their own heads. But guys who develop new jumpers never seem to actually have confidence in it when the playoffs turn. It was the same thing like even this year with Giannis. At the beginning of the year, he was hitting some jumpers, and everyone's like, oh, he's found it. And I said the same thing then. I was like, look, when when Giannis is willing to consistently go to this shot in the playoffs because he believes he can use it to pick apart a team giving it to him, I'll believe it. But until then, and yeah, Bam right now clearly does not believe in the jumper that he believed in for the last five months. And if that's the case, the Heat are toast, man. They got no chance. We're not going to talk about the Knicks-Hawks series on this episode, but if we were, that'd be a great segue to talking about Julius Randle because Absolutely. He, he went 6-23 of in Game 1, but didn't show any lack of belief in his jumper or the fact that it would carry over. So I, I do want to say, like, first of all, Butler needs to be way better. Obviously, he is going to be more... He's just going to be a little bit more insulated from criticism because of what he did in the playoffs last year. 
But like, you know, if Paul George had come into this postseason and said, I am stupidly locked in and put up two absolute stinkers like Jimmy Butler did in games one and two, he would be getting raked over the coals a thousand times over. And Butler so far has, you know, evaded that kind of criticism, I think, because again, like what he did in the playoffs last year is basically unimpeachable, but they need way more from him. And look, you know, I think there are ways that the Heat can kind of create, I think, better advantages for him. And like they, I don't know, man, I like he's such a good off ball player and I just feel like they haven't managed to really weaponize him off of the ball at all. But this is another thing where I'm like, okay, it's awesome that Milwaukee has figured out that they can do this. It makes it doubly frustrating to me that they didn't figure out that they could do this last year. But you know, we talked about, okay, like there are certain situations where putting Giannis on an opposing perimeter scorer doesn't necessarily make sense. And is going to actually kind of compromise the Bucks defense in a way but Jimmy Butler isn't one of those players because you can go under screens against him and because Giannis's length and ability to meet him on the other side and prevent him from getting good shots at the rim is actually going to be really effective at deterring what Jimmy Butler wants to do and we saw again the Lakers do that against Jimmy Butler in the finals last year so the Bucks stick Giannis on Jimmy Butler and there were some hiccups in game one where Giannis was still trying to fight over screens and that's allowing Jimmy to get into the paint. And then the Bucks don't have Giannis's sort of help defense on the back end. About midway through game one, they started having him go under screens and Butler hasn't had an answer for that. Like he was completely shut down in the second half of game one and basically for most of game two. So that's been a great counter for Milwaukee. And I guess we'll just have to see what the counter is for the heat, you know, like maybe it's just more, multi-screen actions to make sure that they're getting Butler out of that matchup or just giving him more space to attack downhill. But what they've been doing so far hasn't been working at all. All right, we're we're running a little long here, but I did want to get your take on Blazers Nuggets because I know, I believe you're writing something on Blazers Nuggets and about the way each team is going about trying to defend the opposing superstar, uh, whether it's Damian Lillard or Nikola Jokic. I will say, man, Jokic, like, and I tweeted this too, this guy is unquestionably one of the playoff performers of our time. And I'm not talking just basketball. Like, I'm talking sports in general. This is three years in a row now, and I know we're only two games into this like playoff season, but this is three years in a row now where an already superstar-level producer in the regular season has upped his game and his production in the playoffs. And that is hard to do. You know, like everyone talks about upping your game in the playoffs, but especially when you're already a prolific superstar, you can play well and not actually up your numbers or up your productivity. Jokic has done it now three years in a row. And this year, he's the MVP, most likely. He's an MVP-level superstar who still managed so far through two games to up his productivity and his impact Two years ago, he gets some to the second round in his playoff debut. Last year, he leads them, uh, you know, obviously along with Jamal Murray and a good team. But Jokic, as the leader of that team, leads them to a surprising run to the Western Conference Finals and coming back from 3-1 down against Kawhi, PG, and the Clippers. This year, he's got them 1-1 in this series when Dame's been lights out and, you know, without Murray. But, like, it is, we're just at a point now where Nikola Jokic is unquestionably in the stratosphere of generational superstars who just his presence on the team 
gives you a shot at championship contention. I think that's where we're at with Nikola Jokic. And I think we're seeing it through two games of this series. I'll cede the mic to you and you can talk about uh, the way each team is trying to guard the opposing superstar. Well, yeah, I mean, we can start with Jokic, right? The Blazers' strategy on him has clearly just been to single cover him, not send help. And I think that... I was even saying this after game one. Like, I'm just not sure how I feel about that strategy. And, like, okay, it seemed like it worked in game one because Jokic only wound up with one assist and the Blazers won the game. But the Nuggets had a 117 offensive rating in that game. And the Blazers won because the Nuggets couldn't stop them at all, not because of their airtight defensive strategy. I get it from a couple perspectives. One is... I think there's maybe some rationale to thinking that if you can force Jokic to take on that kind of scoring load, then maybe you can wear him down a bit as the game goes on. And I I think that maybe happened a little bit in game one. Um, Obviously, I don't know if we really got a chance to see whether that happened in game two because the the Nuggets got great production from their complementary players. And so Jokic didn't have to do quite as much down the stretch. But... I think maybe there's there's something to that. And the other thing is like outside of Jokic, like the, the Nuggets don't have a lot of self-creation elsewhere. And so if you're not letting Jokic create advantages for those guys, you're making it very difficult for any of them to really get going. But when the Nuggets are putting non-shooting threats on the floor, which they're doing frequently in this series and you're still not sending help, and Jokic is basically cooking you in single coverage, I just think that's bad defensive process. And we saw the Blazers adjust, I would say, a little bit in game two, where at least if, like, Campazzo is on the same side of the floor, they're sending a little bit of help. Like, that that guy is helping off of Campazzo and digging down, but, like, they're still not digging very aggressively at all. And Jokic is still super comfortable getting what he wants, And they're also not doing enough, I don't think, to just like deny him the ball. Where like they could be crowding him on the catch. There are a bunch of times where the Nuggets are kind of running pin downs for him to curl up and just catch the ball at the free throw line. And I think three different times in game two, they ran that play. He caught the ball at the free throw line and just nailed a free throw line jumper. And there are opportunities for guys, whether it's helping off of the passer or helping off of the wing, to make it less comfortable for him to get that space and for him to just catch the ball and fire, like crowd his airspace a little bit, like force him to think and give up the ball. And I know, you know, it's not like forcing Jokic to think is a good strategy either. He will outthink basically anyone on the court, but I think they have to do a little bit more to make him uncomfortable. Like, I I just don't think they can keep rolling with this strategy throughout the entire series. Um, Even if they're limiting his assists and generally what he's doing as a playmaker, like he's too good a scorer now to implement that strategy against him. And then I would say like, you know, generally, and this goes to my point about the, about those pin downs to get him to the free throw line. But like one thing that I think Denver did a better job of in game two was to use Jokic more in motion and use him in more screening actions rather than just in isolation. Um, And they're running like pick and rolls and dribble handoffs for him, usually at the elbow. And that's letting him get the ball on the move more and in more advantageous spots. And then also you have like with Nurkic being unwilling to leave Jokic and the Blazers obviously not being willing to switch the guys on the other end of those pick and rolls and dribble handoffs are kind of able to just take advantage by driving downhill. And then Nurkic isn't really providing the necessary help when they're 
rolling downhill to the rim. So I thought Denver did a much better job of that in game two. What do you think of the way the Nuggets are defending Dane? I think the, the adjustment to put Gordon on him in the second half of game two was a great yes. one. We even talked about this last week, remember? And, yeah. and I was mentioning that like, you know, I don't necessarily think Gordon's a natural selection from like a, a wing standpoint of a guy you'd put on a smaller player, but he's capable of doing it if you need him to. And I mean, I, I think that was probably the turning point of game two, to be honest. I think absolutely it was like it, he was a completely different player in the second half. And the biggest and most obvious thing is that Gordon just has the size to actually bother him. And, you know, for a guy that size, I think he moves his feet quite well. He was able to defend Dame without fouling him. And when we talked about that, you know, the possibility of Gordon potentially guarding Lillard in spots uh, when we were previewing the series, we mentioned the sort of downside, which is that if the Blazers are able to screen him off, you don't have Gordon there to sort of help on the back end. The Blazers just kind of played into the Nuggets' hands on that front because so many times, either Dame just decided to try and attack before the screen got there, or he rejected the screen. And so there were very few times when they actually got Gordon trailing the play. Like he managed to just stay in front of Dame almost every time. And I just feel like there's an easy adjustment there with the Blazers to like, put him in more screening action and actually use the screens and implement a little bit more double drag to get him behind the play. And I think that's something like Dame needs to just recognize. And then, you know, the other thing is the Blazers floor balance was weird on a lot of those possessions. Like they're running a lot of those pick and rolls with an empty corner, which is something that a lot of teams do. And it makes good sense because you sort of take away a place for the defense to help from. But it works a lot better when the big setting the screen is either like a really athletic rim runner or a pick and pop threat. And if they're an athletic rim runner, it's like you can make that lob over the top or the pocket pass and they can get to the rim before the help can come from the other side of the floor. Or if they're a pick and pop threat, it's like you really put the defense in a bind because if they're dropping back, then Dane can hit that pocket pass and they're getting, you know, an open pick and pop three. And again, there's no rotation that can come from that corner. So that makes it difficult. But with the Blazers, it's like neither Nurkic nor Cantor provides either of those things. They're not like explosive rim runners and they're not pick and pop threats. So I feel like just what ended up happening is that the Nuggets were pulled over from the weak side really early, taking away the role. And that's opening up the skip pass and Dame's like not seeing it. Like there were a bunch of times where Norman Powell was like pretty wide open in the weak side corner and whether just because like he's too short to see over top of the defense or he just doesn't, you know, doesn't have confidence in his ability to make that skip. Lillard is letting those windows close and allowing the Nuggets defense to reset. So when they're running those pick and rolls with the empty side, the Nuggets are kind of able to like snuff it out. Um, and obviously that, you know, that seems weird to say in a game that Dame, I think finished with like 42 points. Yeah. But once they made that adjustment to putting Gordon on him and limiting what he could do individually, that totally changed the game. I don't know. We'll see if they start with that in game three. I think Compazzo is like overall a good defender, but the issue with him on Dame is like, he's just 
too small to really affect his sight line. And so if you're trying to have Compazzo like fight over top of a screen, unless Jokic is really all the way up, like any tiny advantage that Compazzo is giving going around that screen is like giving Dame a wide open look. And so obviously with Gordon, it's like he can get brushed off on a screen and kind of be like behind or beside Dame trying to fight over and still has the size to like impede his field of vision or maybe even block a shot. Whereas like with Campazzo, that's not an option. Like the margin for error is just way thinner. So I, I feel like like Dame cooked Campazzo in that game. I wonder if they just go away from it altogether. Maybe we'll see more Shaq Harrison, who I thought like he got limited run, but did a really good job trailing Dame over screens during those minutes, not really letting him get free. I just think that the Campazzo matchup hasn't worked for them at all. And they had a lot more success when they put him on McCollum. Um, and, and as for like how the Blazers can maybe adapt to that, like the one thing I mentioned, just like making more of a point of putting Gordon in screening actions and actually using those screens, but also maybe like just using Dame a little bit more off the ball. Like there was one play that I really liked from the Blazers in the first half that I just didn't see them really go back to in the second half. And it took advantage of the fact that like the Nuggets are seemingly also going to trap McCollum. And so what that does is like they they had this possession where they stationed Dame on the weak side and McCollum's running pick and roll on the left side and the Nuggets trap him. And then basically Gordon is the low man in the weak side corner and he has to rotate over to tag Nurkic on the roll. And then you have Compazzo basically having to play between two guys on the weak side. And he is sort of sinking to play between two and Lillard kind of relocates from the wing to the top and McCollum hits him as the release valve. And he gets an open three out of that because again, with Compazzo, it's like if he has to make a long closeout, he's just not able to make much of an impact when it comes to shot contests. And so using Dame kind of more like that, like using CJ's gravity to open things up for him, I think could be another way for them to get him going. If like Gordon is really stymieing him on the ball. Nuggets Blazers game three might be, and I realize how crazy it is because Lakers Suns is a Lakers Suns, but I think Nuggets Blazers game three might be the game I'm most looking forward to next so far in the playoffs because Lakers Suns, it's just not what it could have been with CP banged up. Clippers Mavericks, I'm obviously very interested to see how that game goes. But in terms of a just like an evenly matched series that is turning into a chess match where both team superstars are playing up to their capabilities and then some, yeah, this is quickly becoming the series I'm most entertained by and the the game that I'm most eagerly anticipating. Yeah, and just to see, like, talking about how those teams are guarding the other team's best player, like, what kind of tweaks do we see yes. from both teams, like, defensively and offensively to try and take advantage of what the other team is trying to do, you know, and think a couple moves ahead and react to what they think the opposing team's adjustment is going to be. Yeah, from a tactical perspective, that's a super interesting series to me. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree, actually. That that's the game three that I'm most looking forward to. Like, it's a 1-1 series. The Lakers-Suns is also a 1-1 series, but with Chris Paul being banged up, maybe there's like a little bit less intrigue there. Yeah, I just like this one just to me has all kinds of possibilities. And I legitimately have no way of knowing like which way it's going to swing. Whereas, yeah. whereas with Lakers-Suns, I feel pretty confident that it's swinging the Lakers way. Like this one, I have no idea. I have no idea where it's going to swing and I have no idea what each team might try next from, you know, from like a schematic perspective. And that's fun. 
For sure. For sure. Fun. So yeah, we didn't, I think we made a point just to talk about the games that are two, the, the series that are two games deep now. And maybe next time we'll try and hit on, on the four that we didn't talk about this time around. Cause certainly we had a really interesting and exciting Hawks Knicks yeah. game one we'll, and uh, my, we'll, we'll my Memphis Hawks Grizzlies here. pulling off yeah. the upset in Utah. So yeah. lots still to yeah. talk about. Yeah, you've you've jumped from the Indiana to Memphis bandwagon, and I could not support that decision enough. Um, yeah, we'll talk Knicks, Hawks, and Jazz Grizzlies for sure early next week when we come back. And uh, you mentioned you know wanting to get to all the uh, series that are two games in. We purposely left out Net Celtics because there neither of us is very interested in that series, and that series is about over already anyway. Unless Miami makes quite the comeback here, I think we're both ready to just fast forward to uh, Bucks Nets from that perspective, which will will be an absolutely fascinating series. I'm but, so excited for Bucks Nets, yeah, man. Me too. Until early next week when we talk about the other series, I did want to get to a couple fan shoutouts. Ruben Morales Forte, who uh, we, we don't know where he's listening from or how long he's been listening, but he replied last week when I mentioned that last week's episode was a long one. So there was timestamps in there for people that wanted to go directly to a topic or series. Ruben replied to us saying, why would anyone want to miss any part of a Pound the Rock episode? I really hope we get two episodes a week for the playoffs again. You and at Joey underscore W, that's Joel Fon's Twitter handle, by the way. Have an awesome podcast. Thank you, Ruben. We're not doing two podcasts a week yet. It's tough for us with the uh, you know writing and video responsibilities also on our plates here at The Score. But you know if there is a week where, for whatever reason, two episodes are necessary, we will do that. And you never know as the playoffs roll on, maybe, and, and there's less games to cover, we might be able to do that. And then also wanted to shout out Deshaun at d-s-h-o-n james hobbs on twitter deshaun replied last week uh, letting us know we got a fire podcast and told us to keep up the grind and uh, we didn't get official confirmation from deshaun but twitter account says he's in south carolina not sure how long he's been listening but we appreciate you as well deshaun and i will say that i didn't actually realize until i was putting the show notes together and the fan shout out component together that uh, according to Deshaun's Twitter profile, he is a Clippers fan. And uh, my God, do I apologize for the fact that the episode we're getting him a fan shout out is the episode where I went absolutely nuclear on the Clippers. So I hope Deshaun actually made it to the end of this podcast where we're giving him a shout out and we have not lost that listener. But uh, for everyone else, as usual, the usual call out, if you're a fan of Pound the Rock, hit us up on social media. Let us know where you're listening from and how long you've been a listener, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. And hopefully it doesn't end up being an episode where I absolutely obliterate your favorite team. You got anything else for us, Wolfon, on this second week in a row where we've gone over almost an hour and a half? Man, if I have anything left to say at this point... (laughs) I don't know. I haven't done my yeah. job. I, I think no. I I, I kind of let you carry this episode once I got through with the Clippers rant. I had nothing. I, you know, I I kind of went. I got into my Paul George bag. To be honest with you, you know, you I did burned out I in the do. first half. Yeah, and then I was just I was just spent and uh, let you carry the episode. But I think you did a good job doing that. And uh, yeah, we'll be back on our grind next week. Until then, pound the rock.